Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years in that relationship for 32, and we didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. And I've been divorced since 2018, and together we have an amazing adult daughter who's thriving and doing fantastic. And today on the podcast, I have two guests who are going to talk about the work that they are doing to help autistic adults in their intimate lives. And so there's a wonderful research project that has gone on, and I've talked about it in a past uh, podcast episode, and there's so many gaps in this area. So I am so excited to welcome Monique Hasemen and Claire uh, Bates to the podcast. So welcome, both of you. I love that you're both here to share a little bit about the work that you're doing. Thank you. Yeah. So I usually start by sharing or having the guests share a little bit about what brought them to do the work they're doing. So I'd love to start with Monique. And maybe you can share with the listeners a little bit about um, the project that you just are finishing up and then kind of what brought you to do this work. Sure. So I'm currently just coming to the end of a project called Sales, Supporting Autistic Adults Intimate Lives, um, which I'll obviously talk a bit more about uh, today. Uh, But the project was really just looking at how... um, Adult social care in England can do more and can do better at supporting people, uh, people, autism people around sex and relationships. Um, and I kind of stumbled across this this area of research almost accidentally. My broader area that I'm interested in more generally um, is, is sex, sexual health, um, intimacy, relationships as, as a kind of broad topic. And I was doing my PhD around um the, the topic of sex work. And I was really, really interested in why um, some people spoke about why they found sex work helpful. Um, and it was around things like uh, clear boundaries, consent, um, a, a lot, along with many, many other things. And I was really interested that every now and then I spoke to someone who was autistic and they kind of spoke about the challenges that they encountered kind of trying to operate in a really neuronormative society. And that's what really sparked my interest. And um, the kind of the more I looked into it, the more I realized that um, autistic adults uh, really don't have a lot of support in this area, um, though it is an area that lots of people feel that they need support in. So I kind of found myself um, kind of looking at sex relationships and neurodiversity almost by accident. Um, And yeah. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And I hear that from a lot of autistic folks that when they know the rules, they know the guidelines, it's so much easier because they don't feel like they're setting themselves up for failure. They're setting themselves up for success. So yeah, I, I hear that often. And I know that sexual and physical intimacy can be a challenge in neurodiverse relationships, especially if there's unknown neurodiversity and, you know, you don't know that one or both of you is neurodiverse and you're not aware of a lot of uh, sensory sensitivities or other things that may be related to your neurology. So thank you so much, Monique, for sharing that. And Claire, Dr. Claire Bates, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do and what brought you to that 
so so I run um I run a national network called Supported Loving. So we are we we were mainly set up as a result of my PhD. I looked at relationships for people with a learning disability. So I think in the US and other countries we'll say intellectual disability. So excuse me if I go backwards and forwards between terms. Um so yeah, so that was that was my background. So I've worked in social care with people with intellectual disabilities for around 20 years um so that was my background looking at relationships for people and found that without good support from social care staff people often ended up in either unsafe or unhealthy relationships or they just never got relationships that they desperately wanted so they didn't get the support to make them um and so with um, in social care we often talk about people with learning disabilities and or autism you know that's how it's framed in so many um so many um documents so many tr training the way it's spoke the way the ways people's needs are spoken about um and i have i have um many, i have several autistic friends um and i've spoken about relationships with them and knowing that you know they they don't have a learning disability or an intellectual disability and understanding that you know they had really specific um, things that they were finding difficult, as you said, mentioned about sensory, social norms. Um, and I started to look at what support, was there any guidance for people? And um, was there any research that had been conducted looking at support for um, autistic people around social care needs, around love and relationships? And um, there wasn't any. So that was um, a project that um, myself and my autistic co-researcher, um, Rose Matthews, we've just, we're just finishing that. We've just submitted um, the article um, around um, looking at the support needs that um, autistic people might need around um, or want around sex and relationships. So yeah, I've got a long background in research looking um, at people with intellectual disabilities, um, but in the UK, and the needs of autistic people and people um, with an intellectual disability are often talked about interchangeably and both um, Monique and, and, and me will talk more about how we've seen that there actually are some very specific um, needs that people have um, and that it's often not talked about so that's that's how I come to this line mm, of work. Thank you both so much and again this research that you're both doing and hopefully you're going to continue to do throughout your career is desperately needed because I do a neurodiverse couples support group and there's always at least a few couples who are struggling in this area and they don't know where to get information, where to get support. And I've had a few uh, sex educators and sex therapists on the podcast. And so I do list them on my website as resources for folks. But your work is going to be so helpful because people can go to your website, which we'll talk about a little bit later, and learn more about the toolkits that you have. So thank you both for taking this issue and really diving deep into what the needs are of autistic individuals who need, need the support and help they should have been given, you know, throughout their life. So let's talk a little bit about the Supporting Autistic Adults Intimate Lives, which is SAIL, research, Monique, and who the participants were in the research, because I think the audience will want to hear, you know, did you talk to autistic folks only? How did that work? So if you could share that, that would be great. Absolutely. So as Claire has sort of said, both of us have come uh, from the space where we were interested specifically in autistic people um, without a learning disability, not because... Um, 
just because this is a group that's really underserved, um, not because either one is more or less important. Um, so when we put out our calls, we were specifically looking for autistic people that um, didn't identify as also having a learning disability. Um, and we ended up with 63 participants overall on sale. Um, and they, most of our participants only realized that they were autistic much later in life. Um, our participants ranged from the, the youngest participant was 19 and the oldest one on this project was 63. So we have quite a wide variety in terms of age. But besides for a handful of participants, most people only realized they were autistic as adults. So that that means, you know, they've gone through their whole lives without kind of realizing. Often it was when, you know, when um, perhaps a child or even a grandchild got diagnosed or, or something similar or a relationship broke down or um, they they had a kind of mental health crisis or for some something happened in their lives that kind of led them to realize that they were autistic. Um, so, and I think that's really kind of important because I think there is a difference between knowing your whole life you're autistic and kind of realizing it later in life. Um, Absolutely. And, and we can talk a bit more about that as well in terms of what those needs mean um, specifically for people. Um, so our participants, let's think, so, our, the, our participants kind of identified in terms of gender and sexuality in all different ways. We didn't ask people to kind of say, to we didn't give a list of kind of genders and sexualities and ask people to choose um, which ones they identified with. We, we just asked people to kind of say and, and, and name and label themselves in a way. Um, and we had lots of participants who said they were heterosexual and cisgender, um, but overall, about 53% of our participants said that they identified as something other than cisgender or heterosexual. So we had about half of, of the people we spoke to who were in one way or another identified as queer or in, a ver in various kinds of ways. Um, and I think that's obviously really important because if you're thinking about supporting people, you've got to also think about being um, about su supporting people who kind of sit outside of this these kind of gender binaries um, and so on. And I think that's really important. We were also really excited that um, 41% of our participants identified as black or as being part of a minority ethnic uh, group. Of course, again, language changes a little bit depending on which continent you're on. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, 40% of our participants uh, were not white and 50% of our participants were not cisgender and heterosexual. So we're talking about a very diverse group of people um, from kind of all walks of life, all ages. And I think that just tells you something about who autistic people are. They're everyone. And I think mm -hmm. that's also really important. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. And, and I think the more research that's done, the more we're going to understand, you know, the diversity among the neurodiverse world community. Yeah. I, I think we're just barely touching the surface. So thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's really important for folks to hear about the diversity of the participants. So let's talk, um, both of you, if you could share a little bit about what you find are the challenges and the positives that um, you find people are talking about or they mentioned in the research. So I'd love to start first, Claire, with you. What are you finding are the both the challenges and the positives of you know, sexual intimacy, physical intimacy, and being in a romantic relationship? 
Yeah, so we, we didn't speak to quite as many participants as, as Monique did. We we did interviews, one-to-one interviews with, with um, we only spoke to 15 people. We were much, ours was a much smaller study. So 15 autistic adults who access social care um, in England. So it was a, it was a, um, it was a smaller group and we found that the, the positives for people was that there were people that had maintained you know long-standing um, relationships and they said it was something that they'd seen um, you know people had sort of been a bit prejudiced is the word and sort of you know stereotypes about autistic people not maintaining long-term intimate relationships and there were partners there who were in long-term very supportive relationships um, where they were you know they were supported by their partner and they provided emotional support and love to their partner and it was a you know it was a, it was a wonderful it was a wonderful thing for them we we spoke to a number of people who'd experienced abuse um, or um, exploitation, and for them to have um, a partner um, who and, and having a happy relationship was something that was, you know, of great, of great joy to them. Um, and they felt like it, some people sort of, sort of talking about it, sort of, you know, confounding stereotypes. Basically, this this persistent myth about autistic people not being able to sort of, you know, wanting and maintaining these, you know, relationships. People, you know, some people still unfortunately hold hold that view um so there was you know there was some real positives there for people um um, and And what did they feel was kind of missing or the challenges that they experienced besides the the stereotypes yeah yeah. well stereotypes yeah so the i think some of the some of the challenges that the most common challenge that we found was that people hadn't had any kind of sex education um, that was meaning that was particularly helpful and meaningful for them. Um, so we spoke to people the similar app, even, even though it was a small sample, we had great gen- diversity in terms of sexual identity and gender expression. And we found that people found that they had sex education that, that was that was not appropriate to their needs. Um, it covered things like, you know, the basics like contraception and, and STIs and um, sexually transmitted infections, pregnancy. But what they felt, mo- nearly every participant we spoke to said it, they didn't feel like it equipped them to have relationships as an adult, that there was things that just weren't, you know, about how to sort of develop, maintain relationships. And, you know, we said we live in a, unfortunately, in a very heteronormative um, um, neuro not not very you know accommodating to neurodiversity um and there wasn't just that you know people were talking about things like having a, a condom put on a banana and not really understanding like how this is going to help them um in their adult lives funnily enough um and and sort of dealing with the like, understanding around we, we spoke to a couple of people sort of really struggling with the notion of consent um and mm. what does that look like and understanding and 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 that people who had good support so people who had quite a few people had personal assistants and people who had good personal assistants who were able to maybe talk through things informally with them like that was really helpful so I think yeah the, one of the biggest challenges in our study because we was obviously looking at support was that there was real big gaps in adults education and there was nowhere for them to go um to get that um yeah. and there was nowhere for they didn't know and it was never, never asked about in um, there, when we were looking, so I was looking at social care specifically. So nobody ever asked them if it was anything they needed help with um, around sex and relationships. It was, there was a lot of assumptions made about people's understanding, which left people, um, left some of our participants vulnerable to exploitation um, in terms of having gaps in their knowledge. Yeah, that and I've heard that 
over and over again, and especially from um, women, autistic women. And mm-hmm. so thank you so much for sharing that. And it's just, it's just wonderful that you've done, both of you have done this level of research and really have not only taken it and worked to publish the results, but also to have the resources and you're looking at policy changes, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But Monique, what what about you? What were some of the challenges and the positives that the folks in your uh, research shared? Anything different from Claire's? Yeah, I mean, I think there's nothing that Claire found that we didn't find as well, which is really encouraging because it kind of shows that we are, you know, we're hitting on some of the important things. And certainly, you know, that age-appropriate uh, information and resources when you when you wake up at 50 and realize that you're autistic and actually that tells you a lot about your sex and relationship needs and there's nothing there that was definitely a theme that came up as well um but in terms if i had to think of some other ones um in terms of both interestingly i would say the sensory needs and consent are two things that were both a positive or, or a strength and a potential kind of challenge and barrier Um, So I'll try and see if I can speak about both of those. In terms of kind of sensory needs, that's often something um, that that a lot of people spoke about, Um, you know, kind of touch, smell even, um, and things like that being often kind of living in a really neuronormative society once again if you think about uh, where people might go to to meet and to, to find a partner even if you if you do end up joining some kind of a, a meetup or something like that they tend to be in really loud spaces which a lot of our participants felt weren't really very kind of autism friendly spaces um and so and and also just kind of an ignorance around how how you can kind of accommodate other people's sensory needs if people have kind of different needs and not kind of being um, kind of neurotypical people generally not being as willing to be aware of those kind of needs. But on the flip side, um, our participants also spoke about um, things like sensory joy, and and that's actually something that um, one of one of uh, Dr. Amy Pearson, who was also part of our um, workshops and contributed to them, has published on this topic of sensory joy amongst autistic people, and how you know it's not those things aren't just negatives; they can really be used and and can really be part of um, kind of pleasure. Um, and and that came out a lot in our in interviews with our participants as well, where once they realise that relationships don't have to just be these kind of really um, narrow things that we understand them but once you realize that actually you don't have to share a bed with somebody if that's not something that you want to do every day you don't even have to share a home with them you can do relationships in different configurations and in different ways that kind of speaks to and accommodates your kind of sensory needs once people realize that um, it can actually open up a whole world of other opportunities to kind of enjoy relationships in the ways that kind of really serve you better and I think that's something um, that certainly is coming out of our research that we think everybody would be good would would be better off knowing that you don't have to just do a relationship you know a couple who move in together who share a bed together there are different ways of doing relationships and I think that kind of autistic narratives really bring that to the fore and I think that's a real positive um, and then the other is consent. Um, while a lot of participants did speak about um, having trouble with consent, and most of that trouble isn't around autistic people's inability to understand what consent is. It's again around these really um, 
neuronormative ways of doing, and I, I definitely spoke about this last time on our podcast, and it's um, it's definitely come out again around how you know flirting, dating, all this really indirect ways of communicating, hinting, playing hard to get, and all of these things, which are incredibly inaccessible for um, for most people, but certainly uh, for autistic people. And so it wasn't that autistic people didn't know how to do consent; they just didn't know how to. They, they seem to struggle, and rightfully so, with these really indirect, ambiguous ways in which people kind of hook up. Um, and I suppose the flip side of this is quite a few participants spoke about how they actually think that autistic people are really good at consent um, because they want things said. Often a lot of our participants, you know, uh, want communication around sex and relationships to be very clear, to be very specific, to be kind of constantly communicated in terms of consent. Um, and really they just wanted, they wanted to have like really frank conversations about what what their needs were, what their what their intentions were, what their desires were, um, and so actually a lot of people felt that yeah, actually I think autistic people are probably better at consent than your average kind of neuronormative way of doing consent, um, and I think that was also another really kind of important finding um, to come out uh, to come out of this work. Yeah, I think that's so important. What you're both talking about, I think it's going to be really valuable to a lot of the listeners because, you know, flirting is not a science. <laughs> you know, how to do small talk at a bar, not a science. You know, how to do small talk or have a conversation when there's really loud music, you know, at an event, very difficult, lots of sensory things going on. So the more I think we all understand our sensory profile, which is something we can do research on. I know there's um, a sensory profile that you can find online that can really be helpful for you to figure out what it is that you like, what you don't like, and what, you know, you're kind of neutral about, because that can help you in your physical and sexual intimacy and in your relationships. So thank you so much for sharing that. And I love the term sensory joy. I see a lot of autistic folks on social media using it. Yeah. And I think we all need to find more joy in our lives, especially after the pandemic. It's just, you know, we had to to pivot so many times. It's kind of crazy. So I'd love to talk a little bit about the type of support or lack thereof that people uh, said they received. And you both use the term social care because you're in the UK and here in the United States, it's probably the term would be social services. So it's the same thing. Um, and I'd love to talk about the support that folks received around sex and relationships. And I know in the United States, it's like zero as an adult. You know, if you found out or you discovered that you're autistic as an adult, there's like really, I don't even know where you go to find that. So what did you all find? I'll start with Claire on this one. What did you find in your research? <laughs> um, so we found... <laughs> Not much. Um, so we found there were a couple. So in the UK, we have um, special. We have a small number. They're in our supported loving network of specialist dating agencies. So they predominantly work with people with a learning disability, so an intellectual disability. But there are some organisations. There's there's a wonderful one called Safe Soulmate. Um, there's another one called um, Meet and Match. They work with people who uh, they work with people with a di 
they work with neurotypical uh, neurodivergent people, mainly autistic people, but they also have worked with people with like acquired brain injuries as well. And they run um, they run educational workshops, um, talking about how to date, um, things like that. And they they're very um, they're very inclusive and and you know some people you know not everyone who'd went on them some people felt they were a little bit maybe too geared towards people with a learning disability but quite a number of people said that it was there was one person who said that it was the only time they'd had sort of boundaries explained to them in a way as an adult in a way they'd understand um the person really got a lot of sensory joy out of hugging people and kind of found the course really helpful to understand how um how it was um like what was the appropriate amount of hug to give somebody mm -hmm. like, in, yeah 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 it's just something that they've never it never been explained to them before sure. um, and, and it was and it was really helpful for them to and, and there was another person who was talking about how you know they'd sort of it helped them understand uh, different ways of how they'd, they'd become how sort of they'd got more vulnerable in situations and it was the only time they'd ever had sort of education as an adult but these agencies are very few and far between as I said they're very they cover very they're not funded by the the, the government and they they run on grants and they're very small um, so there isn't really there's there's not a great deal um, that we found in the UK um, providing okay. advice or education it's very it's not funded by by it, it's so rarely funded by government funding yeah and and it's desperately needed and and i because i didn't write it down i want to make sure that i put this in the show notes you said one of the dating services was safe soulmate is that what you said yeah safe soulmates yeah that safe soulmates that there that there's a list of them on supported loving's website um one. i said they're predominantly aimed at people um with a learning disability and there was a real desire in our research for autistic led or autistic informed um groups where people could go and meet in small groups or one-to-one -one with other autistic people to talk about things like flirting in a safe space um but those kind of groups just don't really exist and it's certainly in the uk they're not funded um, so mm -hmm. that that was something people really wanted um, to to be able to be with other to not to be coached to be neurotypical. You know, we've all seen love on the spectrum and things like that. But you know, it was they wanted like they didn't want someone to come in and fix them. They wanted someone to come in and you know, in a neurotypical way, they wanted someone to come in and just kind of have a safe space as autistic people to sort of talk about these kind of things. That that certainly isn't happening in the UK. That's that, that is so important. And it just makes me think I've had um, several co-hosts the last season, an autistic man, an autistic woman, and we're looking at ways in which we can do um, some co-facilitated workshops and courses. And maybe we need to do a support group because, you know, I think it's so wonderful to hear both perspectives, you know, the autistic and I can, I consider myself um, ADHD, so I'm not autistic, but I'm definitely neurodivergent. And to hear the different perspectives can be so helpful. Um, so uh, you may have just helped me think about another support group that we're going to do here. <laughs> and my support groups are open to people all over the world. So, so yeah, I think the more we can, kind of understand you know what we all need 
in dating situations, in those meetup situations, in, you know, situations where we want to be sexually or physically intimate with a date or a potential partner. I mean, none of us want to make mistakes, but we all do, but we don't want to cross lines. We don't want to cross big boundaries. And where do you learn that if you're an adult who has recently discovered that you're autistic and you all, again, are paving the way, but there's so much more work that needs to be done. So what about you, Monique? Anything else that you found in your research as far as type of support? Uh, well, firstly, I think we had almost nobody that said that they'd had support. Of course, Claire was, um, her study was even more ambitious because she was actually asking to speak to people who had accessed support from adult social care. So that, I mean, that explains also why her sample is so much smaller. Whereas I, I was speaking to all autistic people and basically people just said, I've had nothing. No one's ever asked me. No one's ever supported me. Um, and And where people had kind of had interactions that had, been around their you know sex love relationships mostly those experiences have been quite negative um rather than support um so that was just so clear that people felt completely they felt completely kind of overlooked um as as kind of autistic adults and what they wanted in terms of support was um so varied again of course you know it's such a varied group of people um but one thing that was really clear is they wanted they wanted support that was age appropriate, that was respectful, that where where kind of um, capacity was assumed rather than you know the opposite, um, and those were kind of some of the sort of really main things. And what what came out quite a lot was that people said they wanted. Um, kind of health and social care staff to art to make make it clear that support was kind of on the cards um but they didn't want to be caught unaware so they always wanted to feel if 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 there were going to be conversations about support around sex and relationships they wanted to feel prepared for them they didn't want to be caught off guard and they wanted them to be on their terms um and what that looked like for people varied but there were those kind of underlying principles that people tended to share uh, you know that that they just they wanted it to kind of be something that they felt in control of um yeah yeah monique i think that is something that is so important for individuals who are dating for couples in relationship and for those folks who are providing either healthcare services, mental health services, other supports, because I know I was guilty of this in my marriage and I definitely turned this around in every relationship thereafter when I understood about um, neurology and neurological differences, you know, bombarding somebody with some information or asking intrusive questions, which I was also guilty of, um, of your partner or somebody when they're not prepared can be very, very flooding and overwhelming. And so sharing that I think is really going to be important to those folks that haven't thought about it because they may not have a problem with answering those questions, right? Absolutely. And a lot of our participants or a portion of our participants also spoke about, um, I never know how to pronounce it, but alexithymia or yep. just not really know, knowing how you're feeling in that moment and not being as in touch with your your own emo, your own feelings, emotions and needs. And that obviously then also plays a big, a big, big part. If, if a partner or a 
uh, health and social care provider asks you on the spot a question um, or or even if you're in a, a kind of a, an intimate situation some people need a bit more time to kind of connect with what they what their needs are um, and what their boundaries are what they want and what they need and and need some time to articulate that so i think that can be quite traumatic for a lot of people to you know to be on the spot and i think just knowing that is is something that can be it's just a really helpful thing going forward and i mean that's something i've taken to my own life um and realizing that not everybody um kind of processes not only information but also emotions and needs in the same way and at the same pace Mm, it's so critical. It, it, it can be a major game changer in our relationships with our intimate partners and with other relationships that we have. And I always, I always share with the couples who come to the support group that, you know, these conversations are maybe very difficult for you to have and to engage with a coach or a therapist who understands neurodiversity and specifically neurodiversity with adults can be so helpful. So that kind of takes us into some of the amazing things that you now have on your website, Monique, and um, Claire, that, that you have available. So let's talk about the website that you have created from the SAIL project and the website that you have, Claire, for your work and what you have on your website and what you've made available to folks based on your individual research. So, Monique, let's talk a little bit about the toolkits that you have. I'll start by saying that the toolkits were inspired by Supported Loving's toolkits that Claire has produced. I think even before I had met Claire, I saw them um, and before the project started, and I was just like, I want to do this. This is incredible. <laughs> so I think that's like really an important starting point um, yeah. to kind of say. Um, and and the the toolkits that are available on, on sale aren't they're not as impressive as the ones on, on supported loving and they're kind of more um, a work in progress. So, but definitely, I mean, if you have the two together, you're, you, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of love and a lot of work that's gone into all of them and, and kind of, and they're, they're both sets are kind of constantly being produced and created as we go. Um, but essentially the idea for our toolkits is that we've got one for autistic adults and one for kind of health and social care providers. Uh, well, you know, two two sort of sets of tools. Um, the one and and the the kind of resources here are a mixture of the, the the first kind of idea behind them is not reinventing the wheel. So a lot of the stuff is just bringing resources that already exist um, into one space where you can click on them and and, and find them. Um, so there will also be some overlap between the two because I've obviously seen amazing things on Claire's one and be like, oh, I'm going to put that, I'm going to put that <laughs> link there. So they kind of cross back and forwards. Um, but, but, but in addition to that, there's also everything that's come out of the project and all the things that have kind of been raised as important by our participants. And then us are kind of, we did these co-production workshops at the end where we got all kinds of, um, kinds of professionals, most of whom were autistic themselves. Um, but, you know, we kind of had, we had social workers, we had people working in law, we had um, sexual surrogates, we had literally such a wide range of people um, kind of helping us in, in these kind of co-production sessions at the end, which also helped us do the toolkits. 
Um, but I suppose leading on from this discussion around how you speak to somebody about, um, you know, th these ideas of what autistic people said, how they wanted these discussions around support for sex and relationships to be, one of our most important toolkits we feel really strongly about um, on the one for professionals is a toolkit about how to have conversations about sex and relationships and this idea of a menu, because we feel like... Um, a kind of written menu that somebody can take home and they can see what kinds of things are okay to talk about um, in the context of, of whichever service provider, you, you know, it is. Um, it gives, gives somebody time to go home and think like, okay, so I could talk about housing, I could talk about um, education, I could talk, I can talk about sex, I can talk about relationships, and, and to kind of think about what, how they'd like to have those discussions so that when they come to the first thing, whether that be a needs assessment, or whatever it is that they feel prepared. Mm -hmm. So we've got kind of downloadable templates, and we've designed a kind of PDF around that, um, all around um, putting sex and relationships on the menu. Um, and then for the toolkits for autistic adults, um, these were kind of co-produced, some of them we've done ourselves, some of them have been done by some of our stakeholders, so there's a fabulous one on BDSM, there's some stuff around, um, um, yeah, I suppose, symptomatic hypermobility, which is an, an, something that comes up quite a lot as a kind of something that a lot of autistic people also seem to have. Um, so loads of different ones where you can click on and the, the, the amount of re information there is really dependent on 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 what people have provided and a lot of it's still under under construction yeah when i went to the website which is a u t l i v e s dot com i was so impressed and i know there's more to come because there were um a lot of uh, titles that were under construction or, or headings or pages that were under construction and so i would encourage everybody whether you're the autistic partner or the non-autistic partner to check out the website because the resources are amazing. And I think, again, it's just the beginning of this work. And so if folks have resources that they think might be helpful for you to put on your website, they can contact you, right? Absolutely. And I was just scribbling down what you said about the sensory profile online and thinking, oh, we must add that. And so anything <laughs> that people, you know, it doesn't have to actually be autism specific. But if, if you're autistic and something is useful for you, please like share so we can add it. Um, because that's Fantastic. what it's all about, really. Absolutely. And so, Claire, can you share a little bit since Monique gave you the credit for the <sighs> idea of the toolkit? <laughs> Can you share a little bit about what folks can find on its Supported Loving Network, right? You yeah, said. so it's Um Yeah, so I'll talk it. I, see, I can't take full credit for mine because we, we have over 1,500 members and lots of them helped create our toolkit. And it's been, you know, Monique says that, but it's we've, we've had that toolkit probably for about five years now and we build on it all the time. So our toolkit is mainly for supporters. So it's predominantly, it's written... Supported Loving predominantly works with people with a learning disability, so an intellectual disability, if you're not in the UK. Um, and so it's around supporting people in all kinds of areas. But we wrote, you know, it's been checked. We, we, we've written it to be, to, if you're, because a lot of the time the support around the law and things is, is the same for everybody. Um, but we do have a page on um, Autistic Loving, with the, the people called it in our advisory group, um, which talks about our study. But um, within that, we've got a training pack for social care staff that was written 
um, with alongside an advisory group of seven autistic people who were wonderful. Um, and I said, my autistic co-researcher, Rose Matthews, and we wrote a brief training pack for staff. It's only, you know, it's only a, it's only like a, just over, um, it's a half day, one day course, about a one day course actually. Um, and it was all based on the support people said they would like from their health and social care staff. Um, so it's all based on what our participants said and what our autistic advisory group members said as well. So that's free to download and it's also got a resources list on there um, with various resources that people found helpful. Um, so you can go and download and use that for free and um, that's in our toolkit page. Um, yeah, and we've just, you know, we'd like to add to it as well. Um, so yeah, it's um that it, we've got pages on everything from the, the law but again it's all very UK based our one um so it's the law and things but yeah. there's yeah there's there's a we you know we're always looking to add to it we always add new pages um I say my, my research assistant Rose is now on another project looking at autistic menopause um so we're we're gonna we're gonna be developing a menopause page it'd be lovely if we could get um some of her perspective on there around autistic menopause so um yeah we'll be looking to add to it we're always looking to add to it um, but Wonderful. yeah, that's that's that all. And we've got a lot of webinars as well, which you can you can also watch a webinar on, about the project as well on there. Um, Fantastic. There's multiple webinars on there. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of um, doing some webinar or toolkit around autistic menopause. And another thing that I've heard, I've interviewed several autistic women who one was pregnant when I interviewed her and others have um, gotten pregnant and gone through the childbirth process. And for some of them, it was just absolutely horrible that their healthcare provider did not listen to them, did not understand their needs. And so that's another area where I know we need to do a better job as a, as a world, you know, supporting autistic women who are um, pregnant and, you know, are trying to explain what they need and they don't have a healthcare provider who is understanding them. Yeah. Absolutely. It's interesting you say that I've literally just got to go out and my mail out this week. Um, a, a lady called Alexis Quinn, um, has was an autistic mother and has recently published um, as an author of a book, Autistic and Pregnancy and Practical Support for Parents to Be, and she's made an autistic um, maternity passport. Um, so wow. I, could, yeah, I can send that on to you. I'd love it. Yeah, you can send it to my email. That would be fantastic. And I'd love to share it through my newsletter or on my social media. That would be fantastic. Yeah, there's such a gap in the resources for both, you know, autistic men and women, and then the non-binary folks out there. Oh, my gosh, I can't even imagine, you know, the needs that people have that they're not necessarily able to express. Because sometimes, like you said, with alexithymia, you may not even know or understand your own feelings and emotions. So it's going to be very hard to articulate it to your healthcare providers, whether they're mental health or physical health or your partner. So being aware of that is really, really critical. So um, what is the actual website for your work, uh, Claire? Because I um, gave money. Yeah, it's www.supportedloving.org.uk. Okay, wonderful. And I'll put that in the show notes. So um, one of the final things I wanted to talk about, and I know you both are in the UK, so um, it's it's applicable to the UK. And really, there's no policy here in the United States around this that I know of. But maybe somebody will write in and tell me there is. 
What are the policy related things that you're working on right now in regard to, you know, supporting autistic adults in their intimate lives? Um, And I'll start with Monique. So in the project, one of the first things we did in sale was we wanted to go and have a look at what current national level health and social care documents that are just talking about autistic people in general, what do they say about support around love, relationship, sex, and so on. Um, and part of the reason for this was the beginning of sale coincided with um, the, U- the UK having just published their brand shiny new autism strategy. Um, which was from 2021 to 2026, which is, um, yes, a kind of the document that guides all the other social care policy. Um, and we found that there was absolutely not one word in there about sex and relationships. So we were kind of interested uh, to kind of look at what, what the other documents say, because we think that, you know, how you represent these things have a in policy have a real trickle-down effect for what people experience on the ground, of course. Um, We found that largely when it came to autism-specific policies um, and documents and that kind of thing, there was almost no mention of sex and relationships. It was ignored. When it came to documents that worked more broadly with people living in kind of different care settings or supported living settings and and specifically where, uh, or especially where, Uh, people with learning disabilities were also involved where there was stuff it tended to be around uh, risks and kind of mitigating and reducing risks so it's all about thinking about sex and relationships just in terms of risks and not giving um, social care providers responsibility and also with that training and support to actually support people around sex and relationships Um, So we found that there was very little. Uh, Claire will also talk about the work that she has been doing, um, which is absolutely fabulous. Um, But I suppose one of the things that that, that has really inspired us is that um, with our current project, uh, both Claire and I, which is why we're now teaming up to hopefully do something um, together, is that we know, we've just realized that we know that autistic people um, aren't getting the support that they need. We know what kinds of support they want. We know how they want that support, um, but they're not. What we don't know is why they're not getting it, and why why they're not being asked what kinds of support they would like to have. Why support isn't being commissioned, um, and so that's our next project to kind of look into what needs to be done to make sure that when people are getting assessments around their needs, people are actually asking and prioritizing or including sex and relationships, and also when people are commissioning and, and you know deciding which services should be funded and which should be paid for. For example, you know, the kinds of um, dating services that uh, Claire mentioned, um, why why those kinds of things aren't being commissioned, um, you know, by, by local authorities and by the government. Um, so we're joining up to, hopefully, if we get funded, we're, we're joining up to ask funders to please fund us to look at, at that area. Um, so hopefully... Uh, we'll come out at the end of that to kind of look at exactly where the barriers are and what we need to do to change to make sure that that these areas are supported in the future. Because as I said, we know exactly what autistic people, not exactly, but we've heard many voices now about what autistic people need. Um, But I I think, yeah, Claire can talk a little bit more about existing policies and what she's been doing um, in that area as well. Wonderful. Thank you, Monique. Claire? 
Yeah, so Supported Loving has been working. Um, so we have a regulator for social care in England, um, since Care Quality Commission, and that says what train what um what good support looks like basically, what social care staff should be supporting people with around um in their lives. And we know, as we said, we know that relationships are important not just to autistic people, but to everybody. Um there's right. research showing how important it is to, why would why would they be any different? To everybody. Um but yeah it's rarely um it's not included in um it's it's not included in inspections. So when people come and um check the quality of social care, they don't have to ask anything about supporting intimate relationships or sexuality. Um and we've been working really hard to try and change that. Um and we've been told that it's gonna be in the new guidance, but we've yet to see it. Um and I won't believe it until it's there. Um and we've also been working really closely with Skills for Care who decide what um, training social care staff get um, and we wrote uh, myself and a, Sue Sharples wrote a um, generic so it's not autism specific um, it had to be generic for any, everyone who accesses um, social care um, around supporting sex and relationships and it's positive rights based um, but it's not mandatory so people don't have to do it um, and we feel like it's such an important area where people need support that it, it should be it should be mandatory um, so we're continuing to fight for that. Um, it is being included in our care certificate, which is like the sort of the minimum. Uh, it's, it's being included in that. We hope we've been told again, we haven't seen it yet um, as a small part. Um, but we feel like it's an area where people provide a lot of support to people sometimes. Um, and yet they don't get the staff. You know, we're not just blaming them. They often don't get any support and they don't know what they can and can't say and how far they can go to help people because um, sure. we found in our we found in our study people were helping the autistic people we spoke to sometimes they were helping people set up dating profiles with them they were often helping explain things when people had questions about stuff they'd read on google or about why do i have to buy some why why is someone expecting me to buy them a drink on a date was one of the things <laughs> we, <laughs> why do i have why are they annoyed if i don't um so staff were kind of they wanted them to sort of yeah informally do uh, support them and help them a lot of the time and yeah but they don't have to staff don't have to have any training so we're fighting hard to try and um say that's an important area that if people are helping with every area of their lives they should have access to support and training so they know how to do that in you know a neurodiversity affirming way um and in a rights-based way and um generally seeing it as important if people want that support yeah. Oh my gosh. This is again, just the beginning and it's so, so important. I think the more mental health providers and healthcare providers are required, and I think it needs to be part of licensing and, you know, their education to understand neurodiversity and not just, you know, a five minute introduction in a course, but a whole course or series of courses, because I know from my work and the fact that my 30-year marriage ended, you know, if we had known about our neurology and understood that our differences were, many of our differences were related to neurology, I think we would have caused so much less hurt and pain towards each other. And so, you know, there's statistics that are out there that, you know, 80% of neurodiverse relationships end in divorce or marriages end in divorce. I don't know that that's true. I don't know that anybody's really done the research and it's just so negative. The fact mm -hmm. of the matter is when we understand ourselves, 
and we understand our partners and we can find ways to communicate in a respectful, compassionate, kind, loving way about what we each need and want or what our preferences are really can make such a difference in our relationships. But I will tell you in the United States, many school districts require sex education and the sex education is very neurotypical. And I would be very interested if any of the listeners are in a school district in the United States where any of the sex education includes uh, discussions about, you know, neurodiversity or is neuroaffirming. I'd love to hear about that because my daughter is going to be 27. But when she went through the sex education um, classes in our county, oh, I went to the principal because they were all about scaring the kids into not having sex. You know, it was like scared straight. And so these kids, many of them probably ended up with trauma from some of the videos they showed and the things they talked about and entered into sex, uh, you know, and relationships, sexual intimacy and relationships with this trauma, and they didn't have anywhere to go. So I can't imagine what trauma and, and challenges are, are not addressed after sex education for somebody that is neurodiverse or doesn't even know they're neurodiverse and then gets into a relationship and has all these ideas they think are, you know, guidelines and rules that they need to follow. So just Mona's soapbox there. (laughs) Any thoughts? I mean, is sex education um, something that's required in the UK or? Yeah, so there's been, so there was a big change in the law in 20, it was meant to be 2020, but it come in 2021, where um, until that point, sex education didn't have to be taught in special school. So if someone, say someone was in, um, they, they did, they were in a, a, a sort of special education class, they didn't have to have any education around, mm. around it could not be provided. But now that that is different. And the curriculum, I, I don't be honest, I don't know um, a lot about young, I don't, but I know that the curriculum changed now to include a lot around consent, gen, gender, I, I don't know about neurodiversity, I'll be honest, when I read it, or I, I wasn't looking for that a few years ago, but I would now. Um, yeah, it, it so I think in the UK it's improving um, and it is compulsory for all children um, mm. and it certainly talks a lot about different types of relationships and different types of sexual and gender or in uh, gender expression sexual orientations I don't know about neurodiversity I, I mean and again it's only as good as the person teaching it isn't it right um, <laughs> yeah. exactly but it is yeah. such an important it's such an important uh, kind of aspect because so many of our of sale participants spoke about their early experiences with I mean it wasn't always in school but but kind of sexual messaging and and this wasn't the case of course for everyone but I did I did pick it up there was definitely a theme around people saying well I was told um you know if I have sex I will get an STI or I or you know having all this messaging about HIV and kind of then when it came to actually having sex and relationships having this really like almost being frozen in the moment because they were just thinking about okay so I need to do this and this and this and you know if I need to check the person's status and I need to ask that and like just not having had um you know not having had a kind of holistic understanding of you know what a a holistic education about 
pleasure and all the good things and and then the you know the kind of sexual health stuff and the the you know potential dangers and this and that um and then i suppose for some people maybe they can fill in those gaps and create a kind of holistic message for themselves but for some of our participants they were sort of saying well that was what i was told so then in the moment that's what i brought to the situation and um another participant even spoke about you know her her mum telling her you know i was told all men all men are awful um and i don't need a man and you know kind of which i think was the mum was telling her as a kind of a feminist message right um but because it wasn't kind of delivered in a balanced way that's what she took and it kind of it it really affected going forward how she could how she navigated relationships and it kind of just kind of gave the sense of how important um sex education that takes and in, takes into account um how different people process information and make meaning of information is um and how it can actually have really lifelong effects so it's not just the, you know the content it's also just thinking about these more complex issues um, and obviously if you ask people they'll tell you it's not that hard you can easily create a syllabus that accounts for that if you ask people mm-hmm. um, yeah and I think that's the difference I think so much of what has been taught throughout the world probably but I can only speak to what I've seen in the United States does not take into account the autistic uh, person's voice. And so I I love the work that you're both doing. I love that you were open to come on and talk about both of your passions. And, you know, I think that the more people hear about the needs um, from the autistic voices, from the autistic folks, the more we can make a neuro-affirming world, because all of our brains are different, whether we call ourselves autistic, ADHD, neurotypical, holistic, or whatever else we call ourselves, or maybe we don't call ourselves anything, just human. We all process things differently. We all function differently. We all have different needs. But when we look at those differences as negatives, and we judge people, and we don't have compassion and grace for another person's way of being, that's where we create a lot of negativity. And so that's been my mission, my work to, you know, partner with others so that we can talk about the strengths, the challenges and the differences. And this conversation has been a wonderful piece of that. So I'd love to end by asking if there are any other things that you would like the listeners to know either about your work or next steps or other resources you have and I'll start with you Claire and I'll end with you Monique and then also Claire what is the best place for people to reach you uh the best place people to reach me is probably I mean you can go on to x is that on twitter now um you can find us on there supported loving or you can email me um uh, claire.bates at choicesupport.org.uk but I can give that and you can pop that in the show notes always happy to answer any questions um what next well hopefully Monique and I will get the, <laughs> hopefully the funders will look ha- look happy on us and uh, we'll get the funding for the next part of our project and um, which will be really exciting um that's that's yeah that's 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 my next exciting project I think um and I also should say if you're in the UK and you're a speech and language therapist um, I'm working with a wonderful um, 
I can't say the letters in the right ADHD autistic there's a there's a, there's a shortening for it um because right. she talked about it herself Kate Boots wonderful speech and language especially speech and language therapist if you're if you're a speech and language in the therapist in the UK and you want to join our community of practice I'll give a shout out to that please get in touch because we are talking about neurodiversity uh, neurodiversity affirming language a lot um if you would be lovely if you want to join us so that's yeah from me so thank you so much for having me oh it's been a pleasure thank you claire and what about you monique any other last thoughts uh i just it, as we said before if you've got any resources that you'd like to kind of add we can add them to our toolkits because it really is just a kind of community sourced uh, resource so please do get in touch um, about that I think the best way to contact me would probably all my contact details are on on the Ord Lives website um, so I think that would probably be the best place to go um, and and yeah no I think I think we've said it all and it, it's just it's been it's been really such a lovely thing to be able to talk about my and Claire's work together because I feel like we really are just thinking about the same things and I think we're listening to the same kinds of voices um and so it's been so nice to actually be able to talk about the two projects together and hopefully in a year or two you'll be able to invite us back again (laughs) for an update yes I'd love that yeah. Because yeah, we really we want to kind of hold, we want to hold um, social care to account for supporting people's um, sex and relationships because it is such an important part of being a person um, to to have at least the choice to be able to find support in that area. Yes, I so agree with you. And Monique, you're a senior research associate at Manchester Metropolitan University, correct? That's right. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you both so much for sharing so much important information. And I'm hopeful that a lot of folks will check out both of your websites and will access your toolkits and maybe even, you know, join some of your work in the future. And if you have resources that you want to share with Claire or Monique, I hope that you'll send them on. Or if you'd like to send them to me, I'll put my email in the show notes too. And I'd be happy to pass them on so thank you both for all your your passion your work your dedication and your research to helping more autistic individuals as they navigate their own intimate lives i think it's fantastic work that you're doing so thank you both for being here today 